Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161U37, Romanticism, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 134, November 11, 1986. This evening... Otto Scott and I are going to discuss Romanticism. Now, before we get into the discussion, I want to give a general survey, because too often people think that Romanticism and Romantic are cognate terms. Actually, a great deal of what Romanticism has meant throughout its history has been decidedly unromantic, although the romantic mood has been a part of the movement. Now, basically, romanticism must be understood in the context of a departure of Western culture from a Christian perspective. The first major step was the Enlightenment with its exaltation of reason. Man was no longer seen as a creature made in the image of God with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, together with dominion over the creatures, but as a rational animal. Reason was seen as the paramount characteristic of man, and I should say autonomous reason reason that separated man from God and isolated him as a kind of God over creation. One of the consequences of this rationalistic temper was that because women were regarded as emotional creatures, the classical or enlightenment movement immediately resulted in a put-down of women. They were seen as inferior. However, subsequently, in the latter part of the 18th century, Romanticism began to develop. Uh, Cornelius Van Til has described all the movements away from God as integration downward into the void. Well, Romanticism, instead of seeing man as reason, saw man basically in terms of his emotional nature. Progressively, this has resulted in a downward integration into the void. So that, very quickly, as Mario Praz in the Romantic Agony pointed out, Horror and depravity became permanent characteristics of Romanticism. In our time, we've seen the development of rock and roll. Rock and roll is a further descent downward because it emphasizes to the exclusion of all else in man a type of feeling. The lower the type of feeling, the more successful rock music is. 
So we have a continuation of this downward descent towards the void. Romanticism, therefore, has infiltrated into all aspects of our culture. Its most sensational aspect, of course, is rock music, punk rock, but there is scarcely an area in which it is not present. Well, with that general introduction, uh, Otto, do you have some comments to make about uh, romanticism and its impact on culture? Well, I would go back a bit further than the Enlightenment. Uh, it accompanied the Renaissance. Yes. And you, as you know, the Renaissance had a pornographic side. And also, by reviving the pagan attitudes, uh, as we know, the pagan attitudes toward women were that they were very, very much inferior. So you had, of course, after the Renaissance and overlapping with it, you had a reaction, you had the Reformation. Then, because there is, uh, or there seems to be, cycles in civilization, uh, similar to the cycles of generations, uh, the Renaissance reappeared in the form of the Enlightenment, pure reason, and then a romantic reaction to the excesses of reason. And in, in the beginning, I think it was of mixed value. For instance, Sir Walter Scott's historical novels uh, did a lot to change people's attitudes toward the past. And the novels of the middle 19th century, late 19th century, the Russian novels, for instance, which appeared to come out of no place, uh, played a, a good creative role and portrayed societies, uh, certainly the Russian society, with considerable realism. What we're looking at now, however, is all these particular genres carried to the point of decadence absolute uh, end of the line. We're, we're looking at novels now that are incoherent, that have no narrative flow, they have no plot, they have no climax, they have no catharsis, and the critics love it. They keep promoting uh, Joyce Carol Oates and Joan Didion and people whose only uh, expression seems to be a prolonged moan of some sort. So we're in a very peculiar position. Uh, classical music has been pretty well demolished into modern music. As you mentioned, rock and roll, uh, just as serious efforts have been made to destroy melody. We have composers like Philip Glass who will compose an entire piece using only four notes. I mean, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> It almost passes understanding. Then, of course, we have the attempted demolition of painting with the so-called modern school, which is now a hundred years old, and modern dance, which destroyed the classical lines and movements, choreography, and so forth. So I would uh, I would say that we have gone. This particular dip has gone farther down 
than any of its predecessors. Yes, that's very true. The uh, Enlightenment revolted, of course, against God in favor of reason. Then there was a revolt against reason in favor of emotions, and with it a revolt to a great extent against history, against the past, against the meaning of life in terms of Christian faith, the family, and uh, other such uh, ancient uh, categories that men have always prized. Now, the age of revolution has been a product of romanticism, so that when romanticism was born, one of its first products was revolution. And I think it's very interesting that uh, revolution is a war against history, as it were, because revolutionists want to reach uh, a humanistic paradise overnight. They deny historical process. This was Burke's great argument against the French Revolution, and it's still valid, although Burke failed to base it sufficiently on Christian categories of faith. I agree with that, but I'd also point out that where, when Burke produced his masterpiece against the French Revolution, he did it before the terror. Yes. He pointed out at the end of the avenue, he said, lies the gallows. Mm -hmm. But it had, the gallows were not visible to other people when he spoke. Today, the age of revolution. We all know, including the revolutionists, that a river of blood is opened up. We know there are mountains of cadavers. We know that people being burned alive is part of the revolution in South Africa, and it is condoned. Now, the initial promise of the revolution was utopian. They were going to bring in a better world. But now the promise of the revolution is power into new hands. The utopian, the compassionate, the societal promise is now being discarded. So therefore we have reached a very sinister uh, period. This is the only period so far as I know since the pagans, since let's say the Babylonians, and uh, some of the old empires, the very old empires, the Aztecs and others, who were drenched in blood and who believed in it. We've gone almost full circle back to the pre-Christian attitudes. Yes, that's very, very true. The fact that in the quest for uh, feeling for sensation without relationship to any moral concern marked Rome to the point that uh, if a murder were in the play, the actor was murdered on the stage. They reached that point, yes. yes. They had actual murders. And some recent reports indicate that there is now a market for snuff films. Well, of course, they claim that this is not so. They claim that this is imitation. But psychologically, yes, psychologically, there is very little difference between these cunningly reenacted fake murders 
I understand that children today will be exposed to maybe 10, 15,000 of them via uh, film and, and television. The psychological reaction is the same as if they were real. And, in fact, in some parts of the world, they are real. Yes. One of the most vivid recollections I have is of an incident of about 30 years ago. A distinguished professor of economics who had been active with a foundation whose concern was economics spoke on the death of freedom at Stanford University. And it was an excellent address because he went into what was happening on the political scene, looked down the line and could see nothing but tyranny and totalitarianism ahead. So he spoke very eloquently and feelingly about the death of freedom. The students who came to hear him were, in the main, moderately conservative. But when it was over, the first question he was asked was, you talked very eloquently about freedom, but what's so wonderful about freedom? He was startled by that and could not get over it. In other words, romanticism means ultimately the destruction of all values. Nothing is important, nothing is worthwhile, except accomplishing what you want, getting what you want, realizing yourself. Well, that's, that's unfortunately true, and of course people who are not locked up don't know what freedom means. Or I remember somewhat along a similar vein at the in the closing months of World War II, I was in France and a seaport in France, and the street lights were still out. And ahead of me, walked down this dark street, was a young soldier, and on this particular street. Every shop window had been shattered except one, where the proprietor had buttressed it by crisscrossing various boards, and the glass was still intact. And this particular soldier stopped and looked at it for a minute and then kicked it in. Hmm. And he went on and he ducked into a little cafe. You could tell because it was a small light outside. And I went, followed him in and sat next to him at the bar and we both ordered drinks, and then I finally said, I saw you kick in that window. Why did you do it? And he said, well, I just felt like it. And I said, where do you come from? And he came from a small town, one of those places where they rolled up the sidewalk at 9 o'clock before World War II and where you did not get out of line if you knew what was good for you. And I thought it was the first time, probably, that he had been alone and free of fear of arrest, and his only reaction was to kick in an empty window. Yes. The gravitation of modern man 
to a situation where he can be anarchistic is a very, very powerful force in the modern world. I think it's very interesting that precisely at that point in history, when the city was no longer a necessity, the city grew phenomenally. Up until not too many years ago, just a few generations back, cities had to be at a seaport or on a river somewhere where there could be a movement of freight readily and easily. Or a railroad division. Point. Yes. But with railroads plus highways and automobiles and trucks and airlines, there is no longer the same necessity. And yet the decentralization has been greater since the development of these things which have destroyed the need for decentralization. And the reason for that has been the, uh, the uh, lust, that's the only word for it, for depersonalization. Well, that was one of the great lures of the city to begin with, was the anonymity of yes. the city, as opposed to the small town where everybody knew who you were and who your family was mm -hmm. and knew what you were doing and so forth. You couldn't hide. But the city allowed people to hide. So in the anonymity of the city, they could lead secret lives as well as official lives, and they didn't have to account to their neighbors and mm -hmm. so forth. In fact, when I was a boy, I remember one of the rules of apartment living in New York City was that you did not speak to other people in the apartment building. That's, of course, long since forgotten, but now I don't think it's necessary to pass such a rule. They don't anyway. But uh, the point being that it was a complete departure from small-town life, country life. Now, but today we're looking at something a bit different. We've got the romantic, uh, the so-called romantic uh, genre being carried through in the movies and in literature. If you read the short stories in The New Yorker, for instance, which is always a chore, you find that they're uh, domestic situations now. They're a young man and his wife and perhaps a child, and the whole scene takes place in the kitchen or the living room or perhaps in an automobile. They, the great, greater world does not exist. This is almost a domestic drama cast in modern idiom. The movies also are very small plots regarding individual interplay without respect to the context of the times or the period with very rare exceptions. And then, of course, the camera and the books and the novels carry them into the bedroom, strip them, put them in the bed, and describe what they do in the bed as though nobody could imagine, as though no adults exist, as though they're giving sex education lectures in the guise of fiction or in the guise of movies. And the overall effect to me is institutional. It's, it's almost as if you're sitting in a classroom and the professor is telling you or reading aloud to you what his idea of what a novel should be. And in fact, many of our novelists now are professors. Yes, uh, this isolation you spoke of, 
You see it in modern dancing. Every now and then, when uh, I'm flipping stations on the TV and see some of these uh, groups dancing, each in isolation from everybody else, it's the end result of romanticism, your own private world, and narcotics also, your own private world. You don't need people. You flee to your inner world. You dance alone. You live unto yourself. That's an interesting thing. Now, if we want to enlarge the, the subject just a bit, there's an interplay between power, authority, and art. One of the most interesting aspects of the Soviet Revolution was the role of Lunacharsky, the commissar. Lunacharsky had been an associate of Lenin's since before the revolution, and he was commissar of all culture, you might say. Now, he liked the ballet, the classical ballet, and he had as mistress the leading ballerina. Therefore, he determined that the ballet would remain <laughs> unchanged, the traditional ballet, Every other part of art had to go with the czar, except the ballet. And they put on these sumptuous traditional ballets for the Soviet troops to this day. And it's the accident of Lunacharsky's inamorata which has made this possible. Now, he also was the architect of the uh, Len worship of Lenin cult. When Lenin was dying, Lunacharsky decided to enlist the service of art and architecture and music and painting and literature into the cult of Lenin and the revolution. So Lenin, uh, a, uh, a Russian-speaking American professor, female, has written a book called Lenin Lives, and it's a very excellent portrayal of how the tomb was selected, how they had a great contest, how the parades go down the red to Red Square carrying the great images, the icon of Lenin and Stalin and all the rest, the, uh, all the trappings of religion and all the instruments of art, painting, all these pictures of Lenin carrying a flag or exhorting the crowd and so on and so forth. Now, let's switch across to the West. At the end of World War II, Adorno's uh, adored modern artists began to appear. And if you remember in the Adorno theory, he connected a dislike of, quote, modern, end quote, art with conservatism uh -huh. and with all kinds of evil attitudes. Well, at the end of World War II, we had a great flowering of abstract expressionist art and galleries which absolutely refuse to accept anything else. And now I understand it's a $2 billion a year art market supplied by a tiny coterie of artists, handled by an even tinier coterie of dealers, pushed down the throat of the American people who are absolutely nauseated by it, promoted by every art professor in the country, and it's an ex exhibition, in my opinion, of raw commercial and cultural power 
by a relatively small group. Yes, but at the same time, it can survive because the people of the country, in having isolated themselves from God, have no ammunition, no armor against these people. Oh, how well, how nicely put. I think that the only way that we can eliminate this whole romantic culture is by a return to a biblical faith with its realism and with its insistence that we are under God and we must be members one of another in Christ. So that instead of the anarchism of romanticism, we have the community that only Christ can give. Well, look at the difference, the great difference. Uh, when we look at the literature that has come out of the furnace of the Soviet, we look at Solzhenitsyn and we look at some of the other Soviet escapees or refugees or whatever you want to call them. I'm trying to think of the name of that engineer who wrote The Socialist Phenomenon the Soviet engineer. Uh, yes, I know the one you mean. And he wrote an excellent. Ex excellent chapter also in Under the Rubble. And I understand mm -hmm. he is under the rubble. He disappeared into Siberia, mm -hmm. which is no surprise. And the power of their writing, mm -hmm. because each of these men went through the furnace, came out like Daniel, strong in their faith, and therefore what they have to write is powerful and moving. And I think the most ridiculous reaction was in some of our intellectuals who said, well, if we'd had similar experiences, we too could write that well. And you know they wouldn't survive enough to write anything. No. We have an establishment in this country that is dedicated to the destruction of Christianity and everything in our culture that smacks of law, morality, and order. As a result, we have the exaltation of the worst kind of uh, thinking, the worst kind of art, the worst kind of novel, and much, much more. I think it's not... Uh, altogether surprising that one of the all-time uh, favorites on the screen was a woman who said, I want to be alone. <laughs> That's the essence of romanticism. She, she attained her desire. Yes. She's been left alone for a good many years now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many young people know the name of Greta Garbo, and if they do see these old movies played on television, and I must say that it's one of the most horrifying experiences of my life to see some of these old movies again in my maturity and to marvel at the fact that I thought some of them were good. Well, the fact that uh, makes for that temperament I want to live uh, to be alone is that it is not easy to live with people we're all of us sinners we can be problems to one another life in community requires 
patience and faith and work. And so the romantic temperament uh, exalts uh, the individual uh, sees society as essentially uh, something to avoid and therefore says that isolation is the goal. <coughs> it's irresponsible, of course, but this is the goal. Well, the free play of imagination, which was the, the lure to begin with, and the whole idea that writing a novel is an act of creation, whereas writing uh, a historical book or a, or a factual book is not, is part of this nonsense. Because <coughs> certainly it's as much an act of imagination to conceive of how real people mm -hmm. were moved as it is to move around imaginary creatures of your own devising. But the thing that strikes me about this so-called imagination world, the imaginary world, is that in my experience, one of the first lessons I had to learn was to control my imagination. Yes. That if you cannot command your own mind, you cannot command anything. Very good. You have to be able to say to your mind when it wanders off the track, stop that nonsense. You cannot allow yourself to go down forbidden pathways of supposition. You must think clearly. You must be realistic. You must face up to facts, both about yourself and about the world. And the one terrible aspect of the romantic movement today is that it diverts people from reality. Our literature does not mirror our society. Modern man has a very, very short attention span, which is one reason why, whether in novels or in television or in films, the action has to have a fast pace, continually change, because... <laughs> The ability of uh, the viewers to maintain a sustained attention to anything is very limited. Well, that's been observed. It's been, to an extent, cultivated. The television programs used to break into 12-minute segments. I think today that's even shorter. We have books now uh, that promote only one point of view and one argument in that point of view, almost as an article used to. And the novels have a spurious complexity by scrambling the chronology, but if you have the time or want to take the time and patience to unravel that scrambling, you'll find out it's almost simple in the basic structure. Modern life is a series of interruptions. People don't have time for long conversations, long visits, uh, long works of art, long books, and so forth. Although I'll, I'll draw back on the books. Occasionally you see some terrifically long books repeating ad infinitum the points made in the first two chapters. Uh -huh. 
So it just adds up to an increase in detail and a decrease in profundity. Yes. Uh, when I was a student, two writers uh, <laughs> rubbed me the wrong way. Poets, both of them. The one who most uh, was most distasteful to me was Shelley, the poet. And after him, Lord Byron. As a result, I did quite a bit of reading on their lives because they were being so highly exalted by the professors, I wanted to have good reason for thinking of them as no good. <laughs> what I found out very quickly was that neither of them could get along with anybody. Both of them saw themselves as the epitome of wisdom and of righteousness, of justice, of learning, and of truth, and of everything else. So that they were a couple of uh, mangy gods walking on earth who had good reason to isolate themselves from the common herd. Well, that attitude, I think, has become routine since then in the world of art. Just recently, Otto, you did an excellent article in the Conservative Digest for November 1986 on Hemingway. And uh, the title, Why Ernest Hemingway Fascinates Liberals. Let me add, I think it's well worth reading by all our listeners, and if they'd like to get it, Copies cost two fifty each, or nineteen dollars ninety five cents for a year's subscription. If you write to P.O. Box two two four six, Fort Collins, Colorado eight zero five two two, Otto, would you uh, summarize or expound further on what you had to say about Hemingway? Well, Hemingway, of course, was the great writer of my youth. And I remember the Spanish Civil War very, very thoroughly. It was from 36 to 39. And it was a an engagement which engrossed practically my whole generation at that time, at least the part that I knew in New York. And we all knew that Hemingway was going to write a great book about the Spanish Civil War. I couldn't wait to see it. It finally came out, and it was a Hollywood love story using the Civil War as a backdrop. And I'll never forget my disappointment at that terrible sellout. Then... About the same time that I felt that he really not only had feet of clay, but entire limbs of clay, I began to learn a bit more about Hemingway individually, personally. One, about the way he was treated over in Spain. The Spanish communist government, which called itself the Loyalists, and which was loyal to nothing decent, 
provided him with a chauffeur and a limousine and luxury suites in the hotel, all the booze and girls he wanted, and carried him around on their back practically because they knew he was going to romanticize their side in the war. Yes. And that was the side that turned the stomach of Orwell because he saw the executions. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of the arrogant little bastards that came back from the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, and I was very sorry they survived the war to come back, (laughs) particularly the Wolf Brothers, who changed their names. In any event, Hemingway I then looked at with a different eye, and I began to read some of his material with a different view. And of course, he wrote... Like a 12-year-old boy, I mean, the ideas, his ideas of women, his ideas of men were uh, juvenile. Physical courage. When I was got involved in World War II, and of course I wasn't as deeply involved as many others, I came to the conclusion that Stephen Crane, the Red Badge of Courage, and all these kind of writers, Lawrence Stallings, What Price Glory, and some of the others were absolutely off the mark. The commonest thing in the world is physical courage. It's common as dirt. Everybody is physically brave. All you have to do is get your blood up and you're willing to fight. It's moral courage that's rare. And then I had to stop and review Hemingway and all this emphasis on courage. And I don't think it takes courage to fight a poor bull (laughs) The bull doesn't have a knife. I don't think it takes courage to shoot animals that don't have guns. And I thought Hemingway was wrong in his estimate of people. And then I began to consider this individual, many times married who never once wrote about being a husband, many times a father who never once wrote about being a father or having a child or being concerned about a child a man who made a great deal of money and who bragged only about uh, how much he could eat and drink and uh, how much sex he had. And you could see the wish fulfillment in all his heroes. It was Ernie himself doing these things in his books. And uh, in the end, he never wrote about the great themes. He never wrote about what happens to a man who loses the fight. What happens to a man who falls? What happens for an encore after you're knocked out of the ring? Do you come back? Do you get up? Do you continue? What happens to the fellow who stands against everybody else? What happens to a person who calls on a higher power? Is there a higher power? Well, in the end, there was no higher power but his appetite. And, of course, the end was what you would expect from an individual who had no faith, no standards, no moorings, and in the end, no friends. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Nothing. A tragic end. Somebody should put on a play of Ernest Hemingway. What a great opening act they'd have. What a wonderful middle, and what a great and unforgettable climax it would lead to. Mm-hmm. That, to me, would be American theater. 
Yes, uh, when uh, his For Whom the Bell Tolls came out, I was a graduate student at the university. You would have thought it was one of the greatest literary events in all of history. Certainly. The way the professors hailed the book. Every student was going around with a copy of it or with a borrowed copy of it, reading it because it was the thing to do. You were really not an intellectual if you didn't read Hemingway. Well, Dorothy and I didn't know each other at the time, and we were at opposite ends of the country. And Dorothy started reading it and got to that one classic scene, which I think is the uh, point beyond which it's very difficult ever to go. You mean when the earth? Yes. When, <laughs> when the earth moved? When the earth moved. Now, here was a man whose vision never went uh, any higher than his loins, and he figured all people were like that. And so when the this one character and the woman have sexual relations, the earth moved, and you are made to feel this was some uh, supernormal thing that happened whenever a, a couple had great sex together. And he goes on and on to develop the greatness of that moment. Well, how anyone in their right mind could read that and take Hemingway seriously is appalling. I'm not surprised that when uh, in his last years before his death he talked with people, he was full of paranoia. He felt the whole world was focusing on him, that the FBI and others were out to get him, and uh, he was very much an impossible person to be around because he was not mentally coherent, and I don't think he ever was. Well, I have a recording that Hemingway gave. I've never been able to play it all the way through. Uh, I don't know why I bought it. I bought it some time ago, and he was reminiscing about some parts of his youth and he told the most incredible lies about himself. But he was a creature, fundamentally, of the media. He fit the media conception of a writer. It was almost like Clifford Irving, the fellow who yes. faked the uh, biography of uh, Howard Hughes. Yes. Nobody has ever looked more like a writer than Clifford Irving. I've never seen a photograph of him wearing a tie. His, his collar is always open, and he's always heroically poised against the landscape. Hemingway looked like a writer, like, as the way people think a writer should look, and acted the way they think a writer should act. I mean, he was always at the banquet. He was always at the bullfight. Uh, I don't know why the bullfight, because... Everything that can conceivably be said about those poor bulls has been said a long time ago by the Spaniards. In the end, the worst thing that Hemingway did was his simplification of literature, his reduction of themes to yourself and your girl, mm -hmm. nothing else. 
nothing else. And yet, one book after another is written about Hemingway as though he were one of the greatest of writers. Well, we have others. We have others that are almost on the same level. We have Updike, who goes from one terrible little suburban farce to the next. Mm -hmm. And we have a host of them. We have John Irving and his Hotel New Hampshire, I believe it is, which is almost unreadable. Uh, we have Saul Bellow, who has been translating some of the better writers of Europe into the American idiom for a number of years without anyone ever saying anything about it, who took uh, Louis Celine's tremendous works and produced The Adventures of Augie March, and everyone said, oh, how heroic, how, how, how unique, how original. This makes it sound as though we have some sour oh, uh, grapes here. That's not really true. If I had everything in the world, I would never have transferred any of it. I, uh, I, I would never move an inch to do what Hemingway did. Well, we have book clubs dedicated to exalting these people so that through the media through the publishers, through television. We have the exaltation of a culture that is anti-Christian to the core and that represents a continuous integration downward into the void. All this will climax in disaster for a culture. And I believe we are in the first stages of that last disaster. Well, that's possible. Uh, In that wonderful book by Auerbach, Mimesis, he traces the decline of literature in Rome to the point where they could no longer write a narrative history, where poetry fell apart, where speeches, their rhetoric, their great Mm -hmm. pride became just rudimentade just noise. If you ever want to hear real noise, listen to an American after-dinner speech. <laughs> listen, to the, listen to the average business speech that's delivered in the United States, and you will hear meaningless noise. And that's, that was the stage that the Romans reached in their decadence, when nobody publicly ever stated the truth about anything. Mm-hmm never once gave their sincere opinion, never once described the situation in a valid and realistic way in which they were living. Mm -hmm. And then you have what we have. You have noise. You have words marching across print. But you have no literature that reflects the society or the culture or its problems or its people, honestly. We have now reached the stage where People can openly talk about taboos. Imagine a great power which has a constitution guaranteeing free speech talking about taboos and saying that they are good and we should keep them. And they're not talking about sex. They're not talking about pornography. They're talking about one another. 
Well, recently I read a book about the Duc de Richelieu, not Cardinal Richelieu. And the Duc de Richelieu began his career under the under Louis the Fourteenth, and died shortly before the Revolution under Louis the Sixteenth. And as you read about the life of the nobility in France in those days, the thing that comes through loud and clear is how inevitable the revolution was. How could this culture continue? It was so near collapse for a generation or more. And then, of course, because there was nothing else, the revolution simply made more efficient everything that was present in the culture of the Duc de Richelieu. So the collapse came. Now, I feel that we are in the age of Louis the Fifteenth, maybe even Louis the Sixteenth right now throughout the Western world. It's going to collapse, and the is- issue is not will it, but who will succeed it or what will succeed it? Will it be a renewed Christianity or will it be another Robespierre? Well, it's a race. Uh, the revolution is underway. We are, I think, in the time of Louis the Sixteenth. Don't forget that that particular revolution took certain specific stages. The first was the destruction of the pride of the French people in their history. The second was the destruction of the mystique of the unifying symbols of the of the society, which were the crown, the aristocracy, and the church, and the army. And we have reached that stage here. The onset of the actual revolutionary stage to most historians was with the General Assembly met to reform the taxes. And we have just instituted a tax reform Mm -hmm. whose effects have not yet reached the people. But I can assure you that when the people do realize the effects, they are not going to carry uh, Rostenkowski down the street (laughs) on their shoulders. He wants to be the next vice president, you know. He thinks he's earned it of of the United States. Of South Chicago, of Cicero. (laughs) Well, the floodgates are beginning to inch open. However, we have what the French did not have. We have had a vantage point. We've had a box seat throughout this whole century for revolutions around the world. We probably have more people in this country like myself and yourself who understand every stage of these developments than ever existed anywhere else at any time. We know exactly what is happening. All we have to do is to inform enough other Christians and we can stop it. And it can turn out the door that we would prefer to see it turn out rather than the mindless totalitarian vision that animates our great liberal socialists. Yes, and the only hope for the future is in the Christian community, in a renewed Christian faith. A week ago today, I was in Boston, Massachusetts, for a trial of Christian schools. 
That area, I am told, I don't know, harbors a hundred colleges and universities. Right now, they have about 40% illiteracy in Boston, functional illiteracy, people who cannot fill out a job application or a, a driving license application. In Boston, the absenteeism in the schools is 44%. And yet the Christian schools of the area which are providing literacy are being persecuted. Now, that's the intellectual capital of the United States. It does not concern itself with the issue of freedom and of literacy. So there's no hope in that type of leadership. They are the living dead. The hope is in the Christian community, in a renewed Christian faith, in the power of God manifest in the lives of the people. And I think also the enlistment of Christian artists yes. in providing alternative literature alternative art to this nonsense that we're being inundated with. There never has been a mighty step forward or a change of direction in history without some people being subsidized to give themselves to a study of the foundations of the faith. Every great move forward has come when men have been supported to study and to apply the faith. Well, that's true. You know that when the Catholic Church had to pull itself together in the face of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation really managed to survive through art. Mm -hmm. Well, Christians have to learn to give the support enterprises like Chalcedon, to support Christian musicians, Christian artists, Christian writers, because we have the support of the opposition by giant foundations that pour millions upon millions into the kind of culture we have on all sides. And we're not going to change this just by wishing it would go away. Or talking just to each other. Yes. We have to reach the larger congregation. I always like John Knox's term for the Scottish people. He called them the congregation. Mm-hmm. All of them. Yes. Not just the ones that came to his church. Yes. Well, he addressed all of them, and he left his mark on Scotland that in recent years they've been trying to erase, unfortunately, but there is still a continuing witness to what he did. A very remarkable man. Well, I do think the instruments of the new Reformation are within our grasp. Never before has it been possible to change an entire nation as quickly as it's possible today. Yes. All you have to do is get to the microphones. Yes, and to get with them, to them with a thinking that is radically Christian. We've been a single-issue people. 
we may be right on politics, but we're wrong on everything else. We can be right on uh, education, but we haven't thought through other issues. I uh, can never forget the time that uh, Larry Pratt flew to Los Angeles to speak to some of the top conservatives of the West. And what he found was that uh, except for what they wanted to do in politics to win, they were as liberal as anyone else. There was no substance to their thinking, no world and life view that had any coherence. And so he told them they were worse than the liberals because they had no consistency in their position, in their stand, whereas the opposition has a consistent world and life view of faith, which, while contrary to ours, well, is logical. Well, they believe in the devil. They believe that he will give them all the power in the world. Yes. Well, our time is running out. I think we have about three minutes do you have any concluding comments, Otto? Well, I do think that we have to be a great deal more serious. I've gone into Christian bookstores and I've seen some of these new romantic Christian novels, and they do not impress me. No. We must apply ourselves to a higher level. We have to, this is not going to be easy. This is a real, honest-to-goodness, cultural struggle for survival. Yes. And we're not going to win it with jingle bells. No. Nor uh, modified romantic uh, novels. That's not going to do it. I mean, some of the greatest works of literature in the world have been anything but romantic. Yes. Yes. Well, I couldn't agree more. I hope and pray that uh, we can, in the days ahead, provide an anti-romantic and a Christian standard to which men can repair and can become the focal point of a revival that extends beyond the borders of the church to every area of life and culture. Well, thank you all for listening. It's been uh, good to have this time with you. If you have subjects that you want us to discuss, please let us know. We can't guarantee we're capable of discussing every subject you oh, might don't suggest. Say that. <laughs> but we'll try. Thank you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.